Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope. I would just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Hello, how are you doing? And uh, people, I cannot believe we are recording for season seven. And today's guest is Hildebrand Pelzer III. Uh, he is doing some uh, interesting work. And I wanted to bring him on so he could talk about his journey, talk about the work that he is doing and get you excited about what you're doing in the next phase. You are, you as an educator can take your skills, your knowledge, your passion, everything that you're doing in the classroom and begin to create multiple streams of income, a side hustle for you. So for those who'll be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify, will you please introduce yourself, Hildebrand? Good morning, Dr. Will. I'm Hildebrand Pelzer III. Uh, educator, been educator now for 31 years, Dr. Will, um, having served as a physical educator, an assistant principal, a principal, also working at the district level uh, as an assistant regional superintendent at one time uh, for alternative education. I come from a family of educators, in fact. My mom and dad are both retired educators. Mom is a retired high school principal and dad is a retired guidance counselor. And so I come from that uh, cloth of education and the importance of education. And um, currently, I'm still in the education field. I do uh, several things uh, other than uh, uh, write articles around education and incarcerated youth. I also have a book, uh, Unlocking Potential, Organizing the School Inside a Prison, and uh, also lead an elementary school. 31 years. Why, why are you working, man? Why are you working? <laughs> I ask myself that every day, like, how much longer should I do this? But uh, I, I got um, hooked into this, Dr. Will. I thought my career was going to be uh, as a head basketball coach or an athletic director, um, even working at the uh, in, NBA level. Mm. You know, uh, I do have a sports background. My, my father most especially has a sports background. So I wasn't sure what I was going to do coming out of college, Dr. Will. Um, but I majored in physical education at Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. That's where I graduated from. And moving back home, I, I found a job as a physical education teacher at a juvenile correctional facility. And so I coached the basketball team there, worked with the um, football team and athletic department. And in fact, went back to school to Temple University for sports management. That's what I wanted to do. And so uh, I had this opportunity, several opportunities from the school principal and assistant principal to allow me to see classrooms. Mm -hmm. This is interesting. Allow me to, on days that the principal was absent from the school, I would work with the assistant principal and just support the school. And I saw the same students who were in the athletic and physical education space who were strong, athletic, talented, confident, determined, all of those kind of things. But in the classroom, Dr. Will, they couldn't read. They couldn't write. They couldn't even tell you their date of birth. And all of that kind of stuff shocked me. Because coming from an education background, I, how could you be 14, 15, 16, 17 and not be able to spell your name? 
And so that tugged on me and that really got me to think about sports management versus education administration. Mm-hmm. And it was really that why. And then I made the transition and I never looked back. And that's how I got into this. So that kind of passion to see uh, black boys, particularly at that time, struggling with even telling you their date of birth or being able to count past 20 was something I had never seen before. So I want to throw this out there to you because, you know, there are things that we will hear educators or or politicians or members of the community or some people say the school failed those children or failed children like them. But I am of the belief if a kid at 14 doesn't know their birthday, doesn't know their mother's government name, doesn't, you know, can't read, that's a mama family problem. That's also a school problem because 14 ain't six, that's not six years old. Right. And 14 means you've been in the game a long time. And though the school has a culpability in that, yeah. but somebody at home should have known yeah. a long time ago something yeah. was off and to be able to advocate for yeah. this. Where where does the uh the 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 role and responsibility of the guardian mm-hmm. play mm-hmm. into this? So I'm right with you on that. Guardian plays a big role. I mean, because they see it, right? Um, even when I think about little little kindergartners now walking out the house, you know, with the shoes on the wrong feet or not able to uh, button their shirts or, or, or uh, not wearing a winter coat when it's 20 degrees outside. So definitely I'm right with that. Somebody at home, they see this. Um, the question becomes, what are they doing about it? What resources do they have? What, what educational background and understanding do they have? So there is a parent responsibility and a parent education responsibility there. Um, and what I try to do when, when as leading schools is always talk to my staff about what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And so what can we do to help parents, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of resources can we have in the school to help parents understand their role and responsibility, but also what should we be doing in the classroom? So it's a it's a shared responsibility. I'm right with you on that. And to see uh, that type of despair, even in the homes, is also devastating. It, it is. It, it's, it, I, it's just difficult, you know, for me and trying to sort of reconcile all of this, because, you know, there are kids who would come to school. And let's say you ask a kindergartner, uh, mm-hmm. Like, what is your name? Like, spell your name or what are your name? Mm-hmm. Name could be Kendrick. My name, Lil Mang. <laughs> right. Now, how does that not happen? Now, I know my government name is Willie. Right. My nickname is Will. Now, that's still, uh, you know, a stereotypical sort of quote unquote real name. But I knew what the government name was. Right. Because I was like literally told like this is your name and Will is just a nickname because I share the name like you. I am a third. So Mm -hmm. I share a name and I have a name. So to differentiate me from my father, it was Will. And when you have kids who do this Mm -hmm. and they're living with this and then they come to the school now, I understand that the school has a responsibility. Now, how do you work with teachers 
in filling in some of those gaps that they are coming from home with, but do it in a way in which the teachers don't feel put off by it, right? Like, cause you'll have some people go, that ain't my child. That ain't my responsibility to be doing X, Y, and Z. My job is this. Right. So, and you seeing the needs of the community and you seeing what must happen in the classroom, how do you get them on board yeah. with all of that? Yeah. So one is knowing the neighborhood that you work in, right? So it's one thing to be a teacher, obviously, and, and to, but to select a school. So I remember, and I want to answer it this way, when I first became a teacher um, in, a, in a different district, and the district was a district I was very familiar with, and I, you had to select your schools, right? It was by uh, like a seniority order type of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I knew what school I wanted to select because I knew the community, right? And I knew other schools on the list. I didn't really know the community. So just using that framework, you got to know your community. So when you know your community, you appreciate that community and you appreciate the challenges that that community may have and you're going to see it in the school. So first and foremost, teachers should understand the community or neighborhood they work in, uh, whether that's an immigrant refugee community, mostly black community, uh, impoverished community, or whatever the case may be, because you're gonna see some of that in the school. And so that's the first thing. And so that appreciation then leads you to really thinking about when you see early warning signs of, of not being able to read or uh, something's going on at home, teachers being equipped with being able to do something about it, or at least to recognize it and to mobilize resources around it. When you think about it academically, it's like, what, what do you do when you see kids not being able to recite the alphabet at the early grades or not being able to um, determine the relationship between letters and sounds and all of those kind of things. So making certain your teachers are equipped with the skills when they see these challenges coming because they're gonna come. So if you have an appreciation for the community, if you understand your community and you have some idea what you're gonna be faced with and equipped with dealing with it, I think teachers can be successful and they wanna be successful in that way. But if you don't care, then that's where you have your most challenges. Mm. So you're doing uh, this work uh, that you have uh, such a, uh, passion for uh, such a, a mission for it uh, when you decided to you know monetize your talents um, what went through your mind because a lot of our colleagues when they hear of others speaking or writing books or presenting at conferences you know there are those of us like myself i'm like go do it go get your money and others who are like why are you selling this you're an educator this should be given away for free we don't join this job for the pay which is true no one does that however no one should join this field to expect to be broke either. Right. When opportunities came your way and you started thinking, you know, wow, this could be something that I could do. What went through your mind? What sort of conversations were you having 
with yourself? And was it a difficult decision for you to kind of step outside and start to do those things? Right. So along my career, uh, particularly as a principal, I've always had the, the interest in speaking about reform or how to improve or uh, how do you put research into practice and all those kind of things. Uh, but again, my early career was in a juvenile correctional setting, right? About 10 years after that, I also became the principal of the Philadelphia prison system, Dr. Will. And we did a lot of good work in that setting. They had juveniles who were being, being tried as adults in that setting, as well as adults. But I was recognized with two things. So when people would say, well, where do you work? You know, I'm a principal inside full of princes. I would get this like this shock and awe, like, oh my goodness, inside of a correctional setting. Why would you work inside a correctional setting? Uh, you know, that it was like almost a negative cloud. But I was also had the opportunity to receive an award from the Council of Great City Schools, which is the group that um, is a collective of all urban school districts around the country. And after I got that award, Dr. Will, and I spoke and I figured out, I spoke, meet and greet, and I would leave. It was in Houston. I had to travel back to Philadelphia. I, I was met by lines of superintendents, chief academic officers, and other high-level school board members who did not know that they had incarcerated youth in their, within their school districts. It shocked me. We talk about the school to prison pipeline, but once the kids go to jail, nobody thinks about it. And here were these high level people asking me about what I was speaking about, incarcerated youth inside a correctional setting. And then they were saying they were going to go back to their school districts and investigate this. That gave me the idea to write my book because I knew right then that folks who needed to know did not know. And, and so it started there. And so I had the opportunity to speak in different places, even abroad in London. And, and since then, people have connected me with the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, Dr. Will, my connection with it is that from early on, kids can't read. And that's mm -hmm. why they go on to jail, right? We deal with the discipline problems and the and the behavior problems because we're not dealing with the reading problems. And so that kind of uniqueness in what I'm saying has caught on. And so I take advantage of the opportunities to speak, whether that's for compensation or whether that's for free, whether that's a large venue or small venue or whatever the case may be. But if you want to hear this message, then I have a message for you. Mm. So tell us about uh, your book, uh, Unlocking Potential. Um, how did you, how did that sort of the idea come from you to write that book? You know, my school district actually, you know, we work with, we actually hire teachers that go in and work with students mm -hmm. uh, who are in juvenile detention centers. You know, we provide technology, we uh, provide them access to the same uh, software programs that we purchase and, and give to the other students. Uh, so we're meeting those needs of those students mm -hmm. uh, where we, or, or at least we're working towards that. You know, I don't know any data, but I know that we're putting forth the effort to do so. Yeah. Uh, when you were writing your book, how did that come about? Yeah. 
So the book came about, again, knowing that there was an audience that needed to hear this, educators, educators leading school districts and educators who, while they did not know it, they are responsible for you know, juveniles who are either in going through the family court juvenile justice system or those even in the criminal justice system until they're at least 17, 18 years old. And so that was the first inspiration for the book. But inside of the Philadelphia prison system, there was a unique um, um, need to balance education and security. Mm. And so how you navigate implementing and organizing educational programs inside of this facility for juveniles in particular who were in an adult setting was some another piece of information that other correctional educators needed. You know, I had the opportunity years ago uh, to go to a conference in uh, Tampa, Florida to speak to some correctional educators who wanted to know, how do you make this balance? How do you do this? And so that kind of triggered the book. And that was the, the beginning of the book writing. But since the book has also been able to speak to issues like social justice, juvenile justice, um, uh, the value of correctional education, you know, um, what, 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 you know, a teacher is a teacher. So you're a teacher in a, in a non-correctional setting or you're a teacher in a correctional setting. What are those things that a teacher needs to have in terms of grit and commitment and dedication to challenging learners? Right. So all of those kind of pieces I could I put in the book and that has helped, you know, communicate this importance of of incarcerated youth in correctional education. Mm. And you say that, but the, the interesting is. A teacher may be a teacher, but it mm -hmm. takes different, you know, your environment. is different will determine or, or can will impact how you are a teacher. Right. Yeah. You know, if you're in a nice suburb where these kids are told at the house, yeah, this is what the education is and it's modeled and it's expected. Uh, those kids, for the most part, they come to school, yeah, they ready, yeah. You, you know, you don't have the same behavior problems as you have in certain other schools where that community expect communal expectation may not be there and now now you have teachers who are they're like man i am struggling yeah. to teach because i have all of these other yeah you know things that i'm trying to deal with and some folks don't even make it throughout the whole year because they're like i'm done i didn't go to school for this right uh, how do teachers prepare themselves for challenging you know, environments, because it's one thing for you to take a classroom management class in your teacher education program. And there's another thing for you to show up in class and it's like, what is this? Especially if you come from a background where you yourself have never seen that or an experience that ever before. Yeah. So that's my new, that's interesting that you asked that question because that's my new shift, really. Um, you know, staying with the perspective of incarcerated youth, I am seeing, and I have seen over the years that our new teachers in particular, coming out of college, not having any exposure to struggling readers, not having any exposure to perhaps children with behavioral health issues, 
not having exposure to uh, high need schools, those type of things. And so in the new teacher preparation programs, I believe more teachers need that experience so that when they have their practicums or field experiences, they are working with those challenges. Mm -hmm. So that when they get to schools that, that are high needs and what, what have you, uh, uh, low performing populations, they are not in shock and awe. They are not uh, stuck. They are ready from day one. And one of the things that I think uh, that I've been championing lately, advocating for, is that practicums and field experiences should be done in juvenile correctional settings so that they can see some of the, the most vulnerable and most struggling readers they can interact with students who did not have a good school experiences and learn why they didn't. And they could learn about some of the behaviors that precipitated children going on the path to school to prison. So you're right, they need that exposure. It's not enough of that exposure. You know, if you do your practicum in a school district, like you said, suburban or uh, where the reading challenges, or other challenges or, or parent engagement is high and then get hired for a school or district where that's totally the opposite. I've seen teachers quit after a few weeks. I've seen teachers, you know, continue to struggle even after being coached. And then their, their commitment or dedication to that population is not there. And so those are some of the things that I see and some of the things that I think incarcerated youth and exposure to that can help change. I don't even know if I can make it. <laughs> environment brother i'm gonna be honest with you uh, i come you know i i have you know you know sort of my own experiences with uh section eight and poverty in terms of growing up but you know when my brother and i moved to live with our father now it changed our economic situation uh quite a bit but you know and and having him you know, talk to us. And, it, and and at the time it didn't resonate, but when he said, you know, look, I did the back of the bus. I, I did the balcony in uh, movie theaters and uh, colored on the water fountains, you know, and then to get into high school and to find knowledge of self and to start reading about Malcolm X and Marcus Garvin, all those things, that left an imprint on me that when I work with kids now, which, you know, that's not my primary role, but when I see them in schools, mm -hmm. my whole thing is about talking to kids about what are you going to do for you, mm -hmm. right? Like your education is your responsibility. Mm -hmm. I don't care if so-and-so teacher doesn't like you. I don't care if you feel this administrator doesn't like you. What are you going to do for you? Because at the end of the day, you are accountable to you. And even I've seen kids who, you know, have things come up between them and the teacher and they start doing this. And I say, look, brother, right. I need you right now to say nothing. Right. Right. Let that teacher say what they're going to say. If you feel that they came at you the wrong way, right. go home, you tell a parent, mm -hmm. you, you tell a guardian, you let them fight that battle for you. I said, because once you start popping off, right, right. Now, now, whatever transpired between that might not even that might not even come up in anymore in a conversation is going to be about how you handle yourself at that point. So true. And so that's how I sort of approach it all about sort of that self-determination, 
what are you going to do for you? What are you going to do for the community type perspective? That's where I come from. So for me, sometimes it's difficult to see things and to kind of go, oh, because some of that stuff, I'm like, oh, oh, what? Like, I just can't, I can't deal. I got to step back. Right. Because it hits me, it hits me the wrong way. Right. Dr. Will, good point. You want them to be leaders of their own learning. And you, when you see that in part of your, you, who you are, you know, you're willing to approach young uh, uh, students and tell them just what you said. Every teacher doesn't have that grit to tell them you need to be accountable. This is what I expect. You know, when we start having these conversations about expectations, what you just shared is an expectation. Hey, young man, you know, we're not going to have this. This is what you're supposed to do. But everybody doesn't doesn't do that. And, And so there's the distinction between low and high expectations. And you're right. They should be leaders of their own learning. They have to be held accountable for their own learning, knowing what they learn, you know, um, being able to communicate about what they learn, showcasing what they learn, they must, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. So so how do you deal with that reading gap, right? So Dr. L. L. Mecki, mm-hmm. uh, out of the Philly area, you know, doing great work in terms of uh, not only as an educator, but with this organization and trying to uh, mm-hmm. recruit more uh, Black people, people of color into the profession. Mm-hmm. I know what he also talks about is, you know, hey, he, he really is on that, those reading scores and how, mm-hmm. you know, nationwide, you know, Black yep. boys, uh, Black students are around 40%. Mm-hmm. Um, when you are talking about that reading gap and these are where these scores are and this leading to maybe these sort of behaviors and these sort of outcomes outside of school. What are you talking to school leaders and teachers about reading or the existing reading programs that many schools uh, use throughout the country? Well, what are you telling them in terms of how do they address uh, that reading gap. Yeah. And so let me just give kudos to uh, El Mecki. Uh, I know him well. If you ever get a chance to ask him, ask him, you know, is Pelzer your mentor? And he'll tell you, <laughs> yes. Uh, we work together in Philly. And so he's doing great work. So proud of him. And he's right. Reading is it. And so the things that I talk about is you know, trying to focus on the science of reading. Now, I'm not a reading specialist or a reading teacher. You know, my background was physical education. I thought I was going to be a head basketball coach. But seeing that illiteracy and despair early kind of made me interested in reading. Like, what in the heck is going on? And so I still learn to this day. So I don't want to say I'm a reading expert. But what I share with teachers and and folks, school leaders and and people that I, I have the opportunity to speak with is that, our teachers train in understanding one, the five components of reading, you know, phonics, phonemic awareness, vocabulary, all of that. And do they know how to plan and instruct uh, in those areas? Do they know the early warning signs? Do they know what to do with struggling readers? Readers? Do they know how to uh, organize their small groups and look at their data? 
do they because the larger groups of students you have that are struggling readers the more challenging it's going to be for teachers and so can they manage that are they communicating with parents and collaborating with parents around the plan of action that's going to be put in place are they modeling for parents what the parents should be doing at home going back to your point they should be doing some stuff at home too so i speak about that early literacy kind of uh, uh let's capture that k1 and two grade space mm -hmm. so that that's the time children are learning to read because when you get to the fourth fifth middle school and high school you're supposed to be reading to learn but what we see is in those grades they're trying to learn how to read too and so the gap just widens so my presentations have been around uh understanding the science of reading kind of advocating for that and can you put those research uh, and evidence-based practices into play in your classrooms? And if not, what do schools need to do to have ongoing PDs and trainings and opportunities? And what do new teacher preparation universities need to do? I did some uh, uh, study, and this is around 50, 50, 50, I would say 50 to 55% now, but it used to be lower than that where our universities are not preparing teachers in the, the five components of reading. And so teachers are coming out not being able to teach reading and, and they say it, right? I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to teach phonics. I don't know what to do. I haven't been, and there goes the problem because kids are struggling, teachers are struggling. And so that's a, that's a, a disaster. So I want to get into, you know, some the speaking you're doing and, you know, you, you talked about what can teachers learn from incarcerated youth. Yeah. So I'm interested to find out what can they learn? Man, you can learn about uh, what we're talking about now. You can learn about reading challenges and, and failures and experiences. You can learn about um, social justice. You can learn about juvenile justice. You can learn about equity. You can learn about uh, importance of student-teacher relationships, your interactions with students, the uh, how you're working with black boys in particular, uh, special education, behavior health issues. Uh, there are a, a, a number of, of themes and topics that if your school is dealing with these particular problems and practices, incarcerated youth have, have been exposed to those problems and challenges. And so I just come from that perspective you know, every educator doesn't have the opportunity or hasn't had the opportunity to work with incarcerated youth. Some educators just worked in that one school, maybe that one district, maybe, and that's really what they know. But having this experience of seeing grown men and grown women not being able to recite their alphabet, you know, is something that I use when I'm talking to folks about the urgency and importance to get this work right. Wow. I'm still shocked that, you know, if you told me this was happening in 1960, I could possibly say, yeah, okay, I get that. Mm. 2000s? Yeah. It's kind of, I'm like, oh my gosh, like how is that happening now that, yeah. that kids are? Not even just kids, Dr. Will. When I was at the Philadelphia prison system, I saw a lot of this, even with the adults, right? And I remember this one adult male inmate confronting me. He, he really scared the heck out of me. 
because he it seemed like he came out of nowhere, but he was asking me for help because he knew I was the principal. And he was asking me for help because he was still in the hooked on phonics program that the prison had and he wanted to get his GED. Mm. And so right then, and he was, uh, I was younger at the time, but he was 55 years old at the time. And so here was an adult and there were others like him who could not recite, recite the alphabet, who could not uh, distinguish letters and sounds. And so if we don't catch our kids at the younger age and we still don't do anything about it in the upper grades and middle schools, to your point, why is that happening? Like, that's something you would think in the 50s and 60s. And here's the thing, there's research and practice that has been done in the 50s and 60s and we still aren't getting it right. Wow. I'm just like, woo. Wow. That's how I was. I was like, they 15, 16, they don't know how to, they don't know their date of birth. That's how I was. <laughs> I was like, should I be a head basketball coach or should I be a principal? Like, what's going on here? That type of thing. I was like that too. I'm still like that. Wow. Yeah, because, I mean, because we, you know, wow. Because we, we have a lot of challenges. Um in this experiment of, of America as black people and, you know, education and economics, you know, for me, uh, you know, with, with a, with a, a, a moral uh, certitude uh, teachings, th those are what we need in my opinion for us to, you know, move beyond our current status. And when I hear about what you're telling me, it, it just is, is difficult to, to swallow because I'm I'm like my my goodness like yeah we we pump a lot of money yeah into K through twelve even though I know in schools in let's say Philadelphia or whatever you know they're they may not get the same you know dollars as other uh, suburban areas because of the tax base but these folks again you know if you look at per per capita of student yeah. What they be what they're spending? We're still not talking about chump change here. No, you know, we're not talking about chump change, right? You know, there's some disparities between diff different districts and things like that. But it costs over two hundred thousand dollars per year to incarcerate a young person. Wow! Compared to what school districts are spending. And then let me transition a little bit to technology. And, and, and like I said, I followed you for a long time. So I know you're an expert in technology and, and how to integrate that across schools and school districts. But when COVID came last year, you know, COVID-19, this whole shutdown, here we are, you know, now 21 years into the 21st century and folks were still struggling with technology. When I remember in 2000, when the big thing was technology's coming, oh, 2000, you know, that Y2K type of thing. And here we are 20, 21 years into the 21st century and folks are still either do not have mm -hmm. or still challenged with technology, which, 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 which exposed a lot for us. And so I'm exposing the reading. You say, well, wow, is that still happening? Yup, it's still happening. 
and here on the technology is still happening. That amazes me too. Yeah. years into the 21st century. And, and when you look at, at there's a couple of presentations, uh, uh, one, I use uh, mission statements in, in, in one of my, my talks. And, and I'm guilty of this too, right? School, you know, all of our students in the 21st will be 21st century learners. They will be global citizens. They will be, we, we write these really nice, and we may write them collaboratively, like with other input. But when we start looking at the equity in our mission statements and the realities in our mission statements, you know, we're way off. 21 years into this and folks still don't have that technology then. Uh, they, they, they don't. And, and part of that, in my opinion, is about uh, prior priorities and perspective. Mm -hmm. We got a grant um, about eight years ago. And we took that, you know, for a digital initiative and we went one-to-one, -one, six through 12. Gotcha. And even after the money ran out, the district kept paying for the Chromebooks, they kept paying for the learning management system. They can't pay for these other software programs. And, you know, we have a great leader, you know, at the top, respect him a lot. It was very forward thinking when it comes to uh, teaching and learning with technology. And when, you know, the ESSA and the CARES money and all that stuff came in because of the pandemic, he knew what to do. He knew where to go to expand what we were already doing to the lower levels mm -hmm. and make future investments, not something that, okay, we buy today and two years is obsolete. But he knew how to do that. Right. But a lot of principals still don't know. Right. You know, they still think great teaching is someone talking at the front of the classroom and they see worksheets and maybe some manipulatives and they're like, yo, this is, this is popping. I'm about to award this person X, Y, and Z on their evaluation, but they don't really understand that that's not deeper learning. Right. Like I can learn anything, you know, I guess for the moment, mm -hmm. but that transfer of learning, that deeper learning that you are able to synthesize that information, manipulate that information and apply it in different ways. And, and that is something that a lot of schools, I don't even, I don't even know if they even think about the fact that you can learn certain content in your degree. Right. But when you get into the workplace, now you're really talking about sort of applying and being able to think right. about that information in different ways. Right. And that's where I think schools miss the mark is they're trying to prepare folks for a test right. as opposed to not understanding that if we really get into real learning, right. our students will do well on the test. But beyond that test, mm -hmm. they will be able to go into the world of work. Yeah. And be successful there. So it is just amazing. You know, I was really, I, I got so upset during that pandemic 
uh, when these people were talking about kids not having devices. And I was mm-hmm. like, y'all should have been paying for those devices as a school district. Even if you started small and saying, okay, we're going to take some of this title money. Yeah. And we're going to buy this many Chromebooks this year. Then next year we're going to buy this many Chromebooks. You know, you just keep building and building uh, or building these school to corporation partnerships where you can work with a Microsoft, depending on where you are or, or Google or somewhere and see how many can they bring into the school. But I was just, I was, I was upset and I kept seeing teachers on Twitter downplay online learning too. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was, I was about to have it. Yeah. 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 The, that, yeah, the downplay is, you know, cause that's an area that they're vulnerable in that they don't know. And so we project, we folks project like something's wrong with it, but we should have been preparing for that. And this was the big aha, we weren't preparing for it. And you're right, you know, your vision for, for school, what you just described is the way to go. You gotta be deeper. You know, we're, some folks are into this, this uh, metric area where everything's a growth target, a metric, you know, some index, you know, when school, you know, let's grade the schools and this and that. And that is, is really driving tests test, test, test. But you're right, we're missing the boat. Kids don't have the basic things that they need. Schools don't have it. Teachers don't have it. And you're right, we're not getting deeper into the learning. Yeah. Wow. So of all, with the work that you're doing, who's someone opinion matters the most uh, to you? And how has becoming an, an, an entrepreneur and doing that work impacted your work as an educator? Wow, interesting question. You know, um, I'm always go back to my interest in in just what I learned with incarcerated youth. And so um, while I'm not directly inside a correctional setting now, you know, what I learned and what I've taken away and even with some of the students that I had who have gone on and, and did years in the penitentiary or they're out now and they stay in contact with me and they talk about how education helped transform their thinking and their reasoning skills. You know, so when I see kids and teachers and parents now and trying to solve issues with them, I'm always thinking about I don't want them to ever be incarcerated. I don't ever want them to have these type of challenges. And so that the perspective of incarcerated youth continues to drive me around how I help and talk to people. Uh, you know, the feedback I give teachers, the way I organize my leadership team, you know, the things that I think about that are important, the way I should prioritize things. And so it's not necessarily one person that kind of stands out, but just making certain that this message that I learned years ago that people didn't have about incarcerated youth and its connection to education is the angle that I kind of stay in that space. And uh, that has helped me so far. Mm. So before we go, what is the best piece of advice you've heard from uh another entrepreneur, you know, someone who is out there, they're writing books, they're speaking. And what is your advice to those educators who may hear this uh, interview or they see you on YouTube, uh, they see you on Twitter, they see what you're doing and they want to do what you do. 
So I think I could be doing more, you know? So I don't really have a good answer for you because my daughter and others always tell me I should be putting out more content. And so when I, you know, I should be doing, you know, uh, YouTube more or podcast more because people believe, you know, and they send me things like you should be speaking more and talking about this as people get exposed to what I'm talking about. So I don't think I'm there yet. But when I see individuals like yourself and others who have honed their craft, really know their craft, and really are educating other people through your platforms, you know, that's what I look up to. And so yourself and, 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 and others who are out there on that speaking circuit who are really giving strong messages, but making a difference, not just talking to be talking or speaking to be speaking, but they are uh, building new leaders. They are helping schools improve. They are helping um, uh, unpack some challenging issues. Those are the folks that inspire me. You know, there are folks out there that just speak. I, I listen, I'm like, what are they even speaking about? And what is it, you know, and it's not connecting, at least not with me, but those that connect with others, that's what I look up to. And so I, I'm not there yet because I don't think I've put out enough content or it's more that I should be doing. So I'm really trying to figure out, you know, the next steps for me. Well, well thank you uh, for mentioning me. Alhamdulillah. I got, look, I ain't doing enough either. Uh, I know people who are just workhorses mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, between the job and what I do with my podcast or things, you know, I like to just sit back and do nothing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I know there's a lot more I could be doing, but I'm like, man, I'm just, look, yeah worn out yeah, especially now you know i was i was always busy mm -hmm. but now because of what we're doing and, and my job dude it's just <laughs> a whole new level of tired now uh from work you know i just got an email this morning from a teacher right and i'm like it's a saturday <laughs> <laughs> like what's going on here yeah. uh so it, it it's uh I enjoy what I do. The podcast is cool and talking to educators really about sort of monetizing your talents. I mean, we do live in work in an, in, in a field where it's unfortunate where the only way for you to get a raise is for you to get another degree. Wow. Yeah. Right. So yeah. if you're a teacher in the classroom, in order for you to get a couple of extra change, you got to get you a master's degree. Now, in order to become a principal, let's say, or uh, an academic coach, most of the time they're going to require you to have a master's degree. So again, you got that's some more change you got to spend to go do it. And then if you have thoughts of becoming a district content specialist or uh, director of curriculum, a superintendent, now you 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 they're gonna want those those three letters behind your name. So there's a lot of financial investment that comes into the job, mm -hmm. but you can't negotiate your money. Right. Right. So mm -hmm. they can come to you and, and, and look at your data wall and they can say, Miss Johnson, I don't see the growth, right. but Miss Johnson also can't go to them and say, uh, I got 75 kids, 65 mm -hmm. were proficient advanced. Mm -hmm. Where my money at? 
Right. <laughs> can't do that because the state, right? The state and your local contribution says right. that's all Mitt Johnson gonna make. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and, and and that's why you know one of my things with educators is because of this cap on what we what we're doing that we should go out there and you know I'm not advocating people to leave the profession but go out there and create a side hustle where you can also share that knowledge like what you're doing you know with people who don't have that knowledge who don't have that experience and at the same time you know get you some coin right <laughs> yeah yeah I agree and that that is that message that you share it resonates because because that's one of the reasons why I follow you because that what you say monetize when you use that word in your tweets and stuff that's the word I think I, I wrote it somewhere too monetize that's it right there yeah yes sir yes sir. I know I do it especially I hate when folk come at you know ask me to do something for the free right <laughs> you know you, you know if you're an individual I'm good you know especially someone that you know you're an educator you're trying to do some stuff mm-hmm. but yeah you're an organization a company yeah need help that's right i'm with you and that's what i'm learning through this process and and uh you know it's 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 a it's a it's a lot of needs out here mm-hmm. but just have to tap into it yes sir yeah. yes sir well thank you for for coming on this morning and thank you for having me, Dr. Will. I'm so glad we were able to get this date down. And, uh, you know, like I said, I've been following you for a while. I really appreciate you. Thank you for what you do. And just thank you for having me. Alhamdulillah. I, I, I enjoy it, man. It's it's one of those things that it, it happened to me, you know, because I really reached out to, you know, Eric Schinniger, uh, whom I call my Yoda. And I was like, and it was a long time ago. And I was like, you know, because he was hipping me to the game of the of the consulting piece, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Dude, you know, I'm, I got some change coming in, but I'm trying to elevate to your level of change. How can I do that?" Right. And you know, he was like, "You need to create content." Yeah. He meant writing, and I'm like, "I'm not writing for free. I just can't do it." So, for for me to sit down and do it for any consistent basis. Right. I need a, you know, I need a different type of motivation. So I, I will write for the check. But mm-hmm. on my own site, I was like, there's no way I can do this every week. Right. <laughs> Just can't do it. So I thought about the job that I had previously to join in the district where my job was to create content mm-hmm. uh, for that company. And I said, well, I created a show there. Let me do that for myself. Right. And that's how the that's how my podcast was born. And I made a pivot year four mm-hmm. to do what I'm doing now. And it's just been it's been real awesome. And so this this recording here will be for season seven, which you know I plan to launch uh go ahead and launch uh next week. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, I can't believe we're we're like Amazing. Over 450 episodes in, so uh, I'm, I'm excited to see where who will be episode 500. You know where where will that go? That's awesome. That is awesome. That's inspiring. See, just listening to you now. Like I said, it's one thing following you, but just listening to you now—that's inspiring. Mm. 
Well, well go ahead and do it. Go, 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 go do it, man. Listen, I'm gonna do it. Yes. Yes, sir. Because the podcast is really easy, you know, to do. I mean, whether you do it solo with, you know, you can do it solo with Anchor mm-hmm. on your phone, you know, and be be wherever you are, be at a park, in the car. You know, I've known people to do that, you know, yeah. just go, go into the vehicle and start talking into the phone. Mm-hmm. And if it's a, a, a an episode that you like, you let it go. And, you know, Anchor will do the rest. If it's something that you feel like, wow, I need to edit a little bit, you'll just go log into your account on the website, mm-hmm. download their recording, and then edit it that way, whether you're using Audacity or uh, you're going to be using GarageBand if you work with Apple products, then yeah. you'll re-upload it and you'll be done. But I don't do any editing unless I have problems. Right. Uh, if I have technical problems or if someone says something, they're like, oh, I want to take that back. But then, okay. you know, I send it off to an editor, uh, Barbara Bray's son, in fact. And so he'll, okay. you know, I pay him, uh, he'll edit that and then we, we, we roll with it. But I try oh. to be, well, on the production side, I try to do none to as little as possible simply because I want to be consistent right. in putting out the content, you know, cause I, I do still have full-time gig and yeah. just a lot of work uh, with it. Cause that, you know, when you go, let's say Apple podcast, mm-hmm. it's like a graveyard for podcasts. You know, th- there's a lot of people who still doing it, but you can actually f- find recommendations there and look and see they haven't released an episode in three years. Wow. You know, so for me, it was about being consistent and mm-hmm. keeping this thing, you know, going. And that's why I'm like, wow, because I've, I've had this hiatus and I was like, though I've been recording episodes, but I'm like, it's time to get back in and right. get in this mindset so I don't really step away from it. So I'm, I'm excited to release. Uh, go ahead and get season seven out the can. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make movement towards that, too. I mean, enough people have said it to me, um, you know, whether they be close family like my daughter or just people who have heard my message out there and want more have said it to me. And so it's time for me to uh, and it's something I want to do. And so I'm going to make that step, too. Excellent. Excellent. So, people, you know how I do this. This podcast episode will be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify. I need you to subscribe, leave your comments. I like the stars, but can a brother get a review? Because I'm trying to be found, and I'm also trying to get Oprah on the show. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Hildebrand Pelzer III, for coming on and dropping so many gems. And I'd like to thank you again for checking out another episode of the Dr. Will Show, the mobile university for entrepreneurs. As always, people, invest in you, EDU, peace.